BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric. Cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Yes, I'm talking to you. This intro is a little different, isn't it? I am a little confrontational, and I apologize for that. But this month is the fundraising campaign slash plea slash urge slash I can't think of any other words for 100 Words or Less, the podcast. If you have been checking out the show for a while and have not donated, I urge you to do so. This is obviously a very mom and pop shoestring budget operation here, but I am trying to encourage you to vote with your dollar. Everybody asks for your money from friends to parents to movies to video games. There are so many things competing for your attention. So the fact that you're tuning into this and my voice is in your ears right now is really, really meaningful. In turn, I want your help. I want you to go to 100wordspodcast.com. On the right side of the page, you have two options. You One-time donation, I could care less. If you give a dollar, that's fine. That dollar means so much to me. That basically says, yo, I like what you're doing. Keep doing it. 
not only is it a vote of confidence, but obviously it's it's a financial thing as well. So, I mean, people have been really, really kind so far to the show. And this whole month of November, I am making a more concerted effort, a, a outgoing plea to you, the listener, to keep ramping this thing up because I, I just have so many cool ideas that I want to be able to invest in. And through your help, I will be able to do that. So, like I said, visit 100wordspodcast.com, right side of the page, you will find a donate button for a one-time donation, or you can also find a recurring monthly subscription sort of thing. If that's your bag, you'll find that link also directly below the donate button. So one of two options. I appreciate it. So <clears throat> let me clear my voice. Now, now we're in the normal portion of the show. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. Pretty subtle shift, right? So thank you very much for checking this out. And I have a very important guest, fun guest, all of those things. I was just trying to think of the best word to describe this. But basically, this is a combination, super, super old friend and a really interesting life path. So the guest this week is Nick Bogardis, and most of you will have no idea who this person is, which is fine, and that is the purpose of this show, to hopefully educate you. So Nick, I went to high school with this guy. He graduated a few years before me, but he also helped many bands in the music industry from a management perspective. He managed Cold War Kids for a little bit, he managed Thrice, he managed Rufio, he managed... A lot of other artists that are just totally escaping my head right now, but we talk about it in our interview. And uh, Nick transitioned out of the music industry, and he currently, right now, is a pastor here in Orange County. And we talk about the parallels of early tour life, playing in front of 20 people, is basically the same exact thing as starting up a church and bringing people into what it is that you're doing. So... We'll, we'll get there in a minute. Let's let's get some fun pleasantries out of the way, and then uh, we'll talk to Nick. So there's a donor that I would like to highlight because I am going to absolutely butcher his name, and that's okay, though. Sarchev Kirill, Russian donor. Thank you so much for contributing like you did, and I, I really appreciate that. So like I said at the top of the show, please donate. There's no other way of saying it. I need your money, and I would love to turn that money into cooler things for this show and bringing you better guests. Propertyofzack.com, our media partner, self-indulgent. I know I have this platform, so I'm going to do it. I am getting a vinyl discography together with the kind people at Other People Records for my old band, Taken. And you can pre-order that at bit.ly.com backslash Taken Pre-order. Just dive into that. If you were a fan of anything that is melodic and or heavy, you probably may like this. And uh, we're playing some shows in the Southern California area. One of them is announced. One of them we're keeping secret right now. But uh, December 19th at the Glass House with Misery Signals, that will be a show we will be playing. And I look forward to uh, to doing that because, uh, you know, playing shows is fun. That's why we all kind of, you know, are surrounded by this thing because we like to go to live musical events. Anyways, all that all that stuff out of the way. I think I set up Nick in an appropriate way, but um, I was just really excited to have this discussion. And Nick is so... Um, prepared. He he like actually the night before our interview, he kind of went through and sort of diagrammed not like points of his life, but basically he says I forget a lot of things. So <laughs> I need to kind of lay it out in order for me to remember uh how things kind of went in my life. And I was like I really appreciate that cuz you know, it, it there's something to be said about preparation. So Nick is one of those guys that uh he's just always been 
a very positive influence in my life. And I'm sure you have those friends that, you know, have just always existed in your life and always come in at very interesting and opportune times to either help you out or offer a sound piece of advice. And Nick has been that person in my life. And, uh, you know, I'm just so thankful that he is there for me in that perspective. And uh, he's just been very successful at all the things that he has uh, kind of tackled in his life and especially stepping away from a music industry career that, uh, you know, could have sustained him for another 10 to 15 years. Uh, but he decided to step away from that because he felt a calling elsewhere and his relationship with God was uh, more important than any sort of music industry pursuit. So it's, it's a pretty awesome story. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Nick and I will talk to you after the show. If any of you still even listen to that. I say some pretty rad stuff in that last part. So if you're missing out, man, I, I feel sorry for you. But anyways, here's Nick. I mean, you've served such a weird role in my life, like in the sense of, I mean, we weren't really friends in high school. I mean, I knew of you and you knew of me, like, but we exist because you were two grades ahead of me. It's a weird combo of a guy that plays football and ska. It was like, it's a weird juxtaposition. I admired it because you were unapologetic about it. You were just like, well, that's, that's kind of me, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, like, that, that's cool. Like, because obviously there weren't any bands at our school. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, that's cool. It was like, when you reached back out to me, I think it was, you'd graduated. I think maybe I was a junior, maybe a senior, where you reached out to me. You were like, hey, do you want to come to a Warp Tour to take photos for this piece that I'm going to do in Trans World Skate? That's right. Yeah. And and it was, it was apropos of nothing. You were like, oh, like, raise into photos, like. And you've always done that to me. I haven't spoken, like, whatever. We don't speak for, like, a year. And then it was just so interesting to have you reach out and be like, hey, like, pluck, pluck you out of this, and I'm going to throw you into this, this thing where I was just like, I'm not qualified to take photos for this. Do you know who it was? Was it Jimmy World or... Oh, we also... Then, no, that's true. We also did... I, I think I was just taking photos, and then we also interviewed Jimmy... I just sat there silently that's while right. you interviewed the drummer. Zach, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And so it... it it's funny. I don't know. It was just so interesting to see, like, because I'm sure you have those people in your life that maybe wouldn't necessarily view yourself as like being close, mm-hmm. but they've always kind of like randomly helped you out. Yeah. Or I don't know. It was just totally. You've you've just you've served that function where it's just like like that's just weird. Like because it it doesn't happen with a lot of people, but then it's like for the one or two people in your life where it does, where it's just I got my tentacles on you. Like <laughs> I know, just like and, it, and whether or not you've deliberately done this. It, I feel like it, it definitely is a part of your personality where it's like when you did reach out to me, you're always coming at me with something cool rather than, hey, Ray, can you help me out with this? Yeah. Like that could happen later, you know, yeah. but it was never, I don't know. Has that always been, you've always seemed like a helper. Is that a fair estimation? Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good estimation, man. That's very kind. Thanks. Yeah, uh, I've always loved uh, I think your description of uh, my high school days was pretty good because I was thinking back as you know getting ready for the interview and I was like right. I was probably the kid that most punk rockers hated right? yeah like I was the Christian surfer football playing right like, right right kid who was going to shows like I, I shouldn't have been around all that stuff right. but I was and so I'm yeah we got to do um, some fun stuff together and I, I think that's always been one of the things that I've uh, loved to do is 
bring people together um, for stuff that we believe in. Right. And, and uh, to do it well together. I, I just love it, man. And so when I look through like the story of my life, that really is the, the role I've played most of the time is a gatherer or a connector. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, let's do something awesome. And right. Do it together. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you – were you born and raised here in Southern California? Uh, yeah, I was born in Duarte. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was born in Duarte out there, and then we lived in Long Beach for the first uh, – maybe six years in my life, five or six years okay. in the sketchy part of uh, Long Beach. I, I don't even remember the name of the neighborhood right now, but <laughs> right, I just remember right. it was pretty gnarly. We got out of there after like some garage exploded. I, I don't know. It was something crazy. Right. Usually um, when garages explode, <laughs> that's, that's a sign to get out of there. Totally. They're not doing anything good in there. No, nothing good is happening <laughs> no. before an explosion. Right. Um, and uh, then we moved to Orange. My uh, No, then we moved to Lakewood. Okay. Uh, for a few years, and then we moved to Orange County my freshman year of high school. Immediately went to, to Orange Lutheran, right? Like, Correct. Is that your first? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You have a younger brother. Yeah. And he was in my class. Right. And he was, it was so funny because I, I, I wouldn't call him a friend either. He was just an acquaintance. He was a mm -hmm. dude that existed. And, like we kind of were in, in two separate worlds. Mm -hmm. But because our high school is obviously so small, you had no choice but to be like, like, oh, like yeah, he's cool. Like because I was more directly related to him, there was always this dichotomy that I felt between both of you, and I've obviously watched it play out throughout your lives mm -hmm. of just like because he was he was just always like, oh, Tom, like dude, this guy's a genius. Thomas is, is so smart. Oh yeah. And it was like, and then here's like a goofball older brother. What are you saying, dude? Right. I, I just, <laughs> where like, I'm sure, like, when did that sort of, you know, relationship start, or not even relationship, but when did that, um, you know, sort of like polar opposite, like, oh, Nick, Nick's kind of, you know, the goofball and like Thomas, like he's the really smart one. Not saying that like your parents fostered that, yeah. but that was just kind of like the dialogue. No, we've, we've always been wired very, very differently. Yeah. Um, uh, my brother is now a, a philosophy professor. Uh, I mean, he's he's brilliant. I have uh, tons of respect for the guy. Uh, he's just awesome. Um, I think I played more of the <clears throat> like defender, protector okay. role, older brother. Sure. So I was always trying to bring him along to play with our friends and, you know, go shoot BB guns and play war and, uh, you know, do things brothers do. Go surfing and, sure. and do all that. And so there, there wasn't really a... Uh, I don't think I sensed that, that how narrative. different we were. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until a little later in life, like when, when, when he went to, to college. and oh, No, 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 no. Actually, I distinctly remember. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I don't know how much. I don't know if you want me to tell. Of course. Yeah, one yeah. Of the podcasts, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in, uh, I was going to college. He was still in high school. Right. Okay. And I had this professor in, in college, uh, in my, uh, a junior college. Okay. And it was a biology class. Okay. And every day he would just go on ranting about how, if you don't believe in evolution, like you believe in magic. Okay. I remember, I just distinctly remember that. Right. And I, so I, went, I go home to my brother who was at that time, um, interested in going the biology and med school route. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Hey, he keeps saying this. And so my brother was like, let me go to, let me go to class with you. So I brought him I, my high school. Uh, brother to my college class right. and the teacher again makes some hyperbolic comment about if you don't believe in evolution you believe in magic and my brother just slowly raised his hand <laughs> and I looked over but I was like oh my gosh what's he gonna do right. he's gonna get me kicked out of this class yeah and he just uh debated the teacher and into a corner like really he wouldn't believe it was it was the first time I was like it was like Goodwill Hunting, you know, where I was like Ben Affleck. I was like the, <laughs> right. the goofy dude in the sweatsuit. Right, <laughs> right. like behind the brother going like, yeah. Yeah. Way to go, yeah. dude. Totally. Yeah. 
And I remember that being like one of the first times I was like, man, this kid is um, right. super smart. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, he's just continually um, right. done stuff like that over and over. Was, there, was, there ever, was there ever a point where it was like, it, I mean, I'm sure at certain junctures it was like this, and not so much, like I said, that's like putting from your parents or anything like that, but like, this is old. Like, this is like, uh, you know, like I, I am intelligent in my own right. Like, I may not be hitting all the marks that he's hitting, but it's mm. like, Oh, okay, like calm down. Every whether it's like teachers or whatever. I don't know. I I don't like looking back. I don't feel like there was a comparison. Yeah. I think they always. I mean, like looking back, like my parents, they were always at every football game, every baseball game, right? Anything I ever did, they were always super supportive. Sure. So I had to imagine like they they just knew we were different dudes, right? And, like, right. I mean, even like even when we when it got to music, totally, they would come to Coos Cafe. Like for right. those of you who don't know, it was like an abandoned house totally it was a, an abandoned squatter dwelling it's true and my, my molecular biologist mother and librarian father would come to punk rock shows there because i was working with this because band you were affiliated right. totally and so i think they just always they knew i, I was going to do something different and were always loving and, and supportive in it and i'm yeah. super thankful for that because it, it is always that weird role of like what is it what does a parent do from the kid's passion standpoint you know it's Mm -hmm. like especially when you have two two living beings under your roof like Mm -hmm. they're both going in completely different directions Mm -hmm. and you're just like well we're gonna like (laughs) support both of these things like however that whatever that actually means and they had to have had some really terrifying scares i mean i I was in a band called numb nuts uh how do you tell your friends my son is in a band called numb nuts but i also remember at the same time you know years later um after we did the first uh, the, the thrice deal with with island yeah um where i got to basically buy a house at 24 25 and my dad going to work and being so proud his kid was doing something right uh that enabled him to buy a house and like was doing totally. well and so they probably had uh, all the ups and downs that a parent can have i can imagine so <laughs> they've been awesome through it all yeah. and so when you were you know as you were alluding to earlier and you're you know matriculating through high school and mm-hmm. and involved in all these random cool. things was your path because like you were saying you went to junior college and stuff did mm-hmm. you were you just basically like i need to do something with music or did you have other aspirations in your head that you wanted to to jump to Kind of like you pointing out the dichotomy and everything that was always that was always there. So I knew um, my interests and, and my my passion. Like I always loved history. Mm-hmm. I, I did always love uh, learning. Um, I've always, from what, from what I can remember, I just, I've just loved reading and, okay. and exploring and being curious. Um, and I've also um, always loved, um, not always loved. Uh, I always felt like some kind of call to, to ministry um, sure. in the church. And so at the time I had this thing in, in with school over, I was like, well, I, I do enjoy learning and I feel like I uh, want to go that route later. But I also have this thing that's right in front of me of like, I, I have this passion for music and independent music um, and uh, creating and helping people create. And so um, there was always this kind of, there was always this tug um, back and forth. And so, um, I'm trying to remember. Mm-hmm. There, there was a, a, when I was at Concordia, that was when there was a, a very distinct kind of like division in the path of like right. I was in school as a pre-seminary major. Right. Um, and I could go that route uh-huh. or, uh, and I know, I mean, we'll probably get there in yeah, a, yeah, a few yeah. minutes, but the option of like, now I need to do music full time. And so, yeah, you had to make that decision. How did you even get clued into kind of, you know, 
independent music in general, you know, via like how obviously popular ska was at that time? Like, or was it? No, I, I was thinking about this last night. I had totally forgotten. Yeah. Um, do you remember that band Vitamin L? Yeah, I do. Yeah, they're horrific. Yeah, not a I mean, good band. I, I know uh, Dave still books at the Yoast, and I had, we had some interaction right. uh, for work stuff a few years ago. And so we, we've been friendly ever since, but I distinctly remember. Uh-huh. I must have been 14 or something. Okay. Uh, my parents took us to some street fair in Fullerton, okay. and Vitamin L uh, was playing uh, in some tent. Sure. Like it, it was... I don't even know if it was a pop-up tent or what it was, but they were playing in it. Right. And, you know, they had, like, it was, like, some kind of, it was, like, voodoo glow skulls, kind of like this right. hybrid punk sure, rock. Sure, like, sure. And um, it was, the, they had a trom- I don't know, they had a trombone, they had something in it. I don't know. Yeah, it was yeah. a punk rock with a horn. Right, which, some brass, right. Right, whatever. right. I just remember thinking, like, what is going on right now? Right. This is bizarre, and I like it, but I don't know what to think about it. Totally. Um and uh, that was the first time where I was exposed to anything like that. And then my first show that I, I mean, I was, a, I was a Christian kid, so my first show was MXPX, right? Like I was like of the, kind of like the obligatory first show. Of course, um, right. And so th- those were kind of the that kind of pushed you, kind of pushed me into it. I mean, but it went really quickly. I've always been kind of the, like I said, I've always been like really curious and like a voracious. Um, I don't know, learner. I, I hope. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember like even writing home. Actually, independent music. Yeah, I distinctly remember the first time I heard "Smells Like Teen Spirit." Okay, um, for sure. Uh, in eighth grade, uh, someone gave me a cassette sure. of uh, of Nevermind, and I it just destroyed me. Right, like I remember thinking, like, "What, what is, is this?" this? Yeah, totally yeah, yeah. blew my mind. And so I, I just remember, uh, you know, when I was like 12, 13, 14, riding my bike to Tower Records, buying albums. Like at the time, it was like Metallica and Justice for All, and uh, ride the lightning and all that stuff, and like coming home and I would pour over the liner notes. You know, right. like, like who produced this? Um, who engineered it? Where did they record it? <laughs> sure. Who's the management? I mean, I was fourteen. Who needs right. to know that stuff? No, yeah, no you one don't need to know that stuff. Not at all. You need to know what time pony baseball practice. Right, is, right, was, right, right. I was always uh, just uh, devouring, devouring yeah, that yeah. stuff, and so um, that's kind of actually probably what got me more in. in into independent music it kind of like set the table for me to actually then experience it sure sure um, it was so. kind of a, but it was it was definitely the all-consuming yes moment of just like oh this is it yeah i found this mm, totally and so then like did you you know as you were joking about earlier where it's like you know you started a ska band and yeah. was it one of those things like you had aspirations to be like this is going to continue like past high school like we're going to be a thing we're going to do it as hard as possible or was it like, was it just kind of like, oh, this is, ska bands are hard because you have like nine people in the band, like trying to manage. Yeah. But at that point, you're not thinking about. No, 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 Where's no, the no. income going to come No, 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 no. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Not a division of that, total. but just like a sheer logistics of like, yes. we have to show up here and like, is everybody going to be here? Like, yes. Which with musicians in and of themselves, that's a difficult thing. And then you. Right multiply the numbers and totally. it becomes impossible. Uh, no, it was just, it was just fun. It was just fun. Yeah. Um, it was fun. You know, you're just making music with friends and it's terrible. And right. it's in, you know, it's embarrassing. And sure. you, you look back on it and I cringe. But at, at the time it was fun. Um, and it was, it was definitely like it was so of the moment because it was so like you guys were plugged into shows that you can guarantee at least 200 people are going to be there. Yeah. We were on the first show that sold out at what was then public storage. Right. It's now Chain Reaction. It was like us and RX Bandits. And uh, the hippos, no, the hippos, hippos, totally. Who I didn't know that uh, Ariel, I can't, I don't remember his last name. Uh -uh. Huge producer now. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, totally. He's done like tons of crazy stuff. Uh, Anyway, um, 
so at the time it, it was fun, but it was also for me the time when I learned um, I'm terrible at music. Sure. <laughs> and so uh, I could wrangle all of them, but right. I, I couldn't sing to save myself. I, sure. I, I couldn't. Uh, you were like, okay. I can see where my talents might lie. Uh, well, I can, I can see where they definitely don't lie. Right, right. right. Which, which is not yes. in performing this music. No, it was horrific. Um, and so uh, I, I started to just, you know, it started to just kind of fade out after about a year and a half. And, yeah. Um, but I had a much clearer sense of like, hey, I love this, but this aspect of it isn't for me. And right. so I'm not a performer. Probably. No. And I had been, you know, every band has the business guy, right? Right. Um, and I had always been kind of like that guy. Like I was the one who was booking all the shows and making sure, sure we're getting merch on time and like yeah. all that stuff. Anyway. You're, you're the, the logistics hustle man. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm the one who kept it going longer than it needed to. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which, which is such a, that's such an important point of like a high school band when you do have like a person who is so like driven to not like make it successful, but just be like, yeah, this like, this is still good. And everyone else is oh, like, I, as long as Nick's doing it, that's fine. I guess it went on longer than it needed to. That's for sure. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal. Unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 infinity QX 80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all want more time in our lives. You know, whether it's like, dang, I wish I had like another hour to, you know, play video games or read more or get outside or whatever it is. I know myself that I actually get questions a lot in regards to this podcast. How do you fit it in your day? And like, how do you do the interviews and all that stuff to be able to then balance the rest of my life from my work and, you know, playing in a band and I have a family, all of these things. But that is why therapy is so awesome because it helps you be able to sort out your life to focus on the things that for one really matter to you and two, try to find more time for those things that you love. That is why I love working with BetterHelp because if you need to find a therapist, they're there for you. So give them a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient for you and they can be suited to your schedule and you fill out a brief questionnaire, matches you up with your own personal therapist, and if you do not like that experience, you can switch it. No problem. No questions asked. It's great. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. It's an offer just for you, the listener of this podcast. That's BetterHelp.com Ray. 
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Right. Another another sort of inflection point in you jumping into my life again was when you were working at Time Bomb Records. We hadn't spoken in a while. Like this was a good year and a half or so. I don't I don't even know how you got my home address, but you got like I you got it. But you sent me the Sunny Day Real Estate Record. That yeah. Time Bomb. Well, I think there was actually a piece of the story between those two. Well, okay. I the Green Records. You, yeah, that's true. You and, were working there. So you, right. When I worked at Green, you were working at Bionic, I think, right? I think so, yeah. Around that time. Uh, but that was another like really important part for me of, of independent music. Of, that's true, of working at the Working store, with right. uh, Andy Green and Ron Martinez and, uh, and Mike Cheese. Uh, and, uh, I mean, dudes who were, had been living in independent music for, you know, I don't know, a decade or more totally. by the time I got there totally. um, and who were just uh, really gracious and uh, nice and helpful and taught me a lot about, taught me a ton about music and gave this, again, the, the Christian surfer uh, football right. playing uh, punk right. rock liking ska band kid right. a chance to work at like a, a really cool, credible record store. No, um, that's, that's very true. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, that was, I think um, we had had some interaction at that time for that's sure. True. Cause that's you were true. doing taken and that's, right. that's how it, the, the right, the thrice guys uh, and I met. And uh, so that was, that was a really important piece for but sure. But you were, but you were working like time bomb was, was around that same time. Like you, you left was, green. I left green to go to time bomb. Okay. So time bomb. So you just you randomly sent me the Sunny Day Real Estate yeah. record, and it was like months before it came out. I was just like, all of a sudden, I was like, the package. What is it? And I opened. It, I was like, what? This what? Yeah. This is a new Sunny Day Real Estate record. Yeah. Like, and it was just it was like a note. It was like, hey, like like let's get together sometime for lunch or something like that. Come yeah. down to the office or whatever. And it was at that time. I know that's when I noticed that you obviously had the ambitions to obviously like want to manage bands and like want to like you know, take this into a career path. And that was when you were just like, Hey, you know, come meet the thrice dudes. And like, you know, let's go see Rufio at the showcase theater and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that was the kind of the, the time, like you were talking about that sort of fork in the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was that, was that around that, that whole time where you made that decision? Uh, The fork actually came after that, man. Um, Yeah. The time at uh, time on rebel waltz um, was, was really, really formative. Um, Jim Guerno, who is the the head of both of them, is uh, one of the most respected music industry exec- executives, and I, I just loved his approach. Man, he was like, 
I don't want to go to LA. I don't want to be a part of the LA scene. I'm just going to set up shop here in Laguna Beach. Right. And if you want to come talk to me, just come on down here. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, I don't want to go to LA. Right. And so he created this incredible business. And the other thing I loved about it was like he did it with bands from Orange County. Yeah. Like all, everyone that he worked with was was homegrown, it's which true. which I really respected. And he had this. Um, he was just a really um, smart, again, gracious. Um, yeah person in my life who was a really uh i don't know man successful uh respected uh, yeah just brilliant dude but who would take time to like you know when he wasn't when i wasn't scared of him uh, right, like, right right teach me some stuff which was <laughs> rad um and then you know uh P. Jaberga and a few other dudes i mean i just remember like at that time you know when i showed up and uh Jaberga made me watch Swimming with Sharks with Kevin Spacey oh, yeah, in the yeah, movie, yeah, right? Yeah. And his whole point was watch this so that you will shut up, listen, and learn. And I kind of just took that as like, yeah, I'm I'm 19. Um, I should just shut up and listen and what, learn. What were you hired to do there? Uh I was the assistant to the uh publicist and radio promotions. Okay, staff. Got it. And so um, Rebel Waltz was the management company right. and they managed, uh, no doubt and social distortion and the offspring and Tony Hawk at the time. Mm. And then, um, uh, time bomb was the record label and they had uh, Sunny Day real estate and no knife totally. and social D social I think. So D, it was, yep. it was an amazing experience because they got to see how, uh, in international massive artists, uh, were managed right. and what, that took to do that. And sure. I also got to see the independent side of things. It was just an amazing, uh, that's true. Microcosm. You see the, right. Yeah. Totally. Label of, and of manage- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, that was just a really formative of time for me. And so, I mean, uh, Jaberga would, I would go to shows with him all the time. He was the A&R guy. Yeah. And, um, it, we, he would just, I would just absorb. Right. I would, I would, I would literally just be quiet right. and ask questions sure. and just learn and learn and learn. And, um, and it was fun, man. It was a lot of fun, but it was during that time that, um, uh, Andy Green uh, from Green Records sent me Identity Crisis. Right. And I <clears throat> and I remember sitting at my desk. I had this beautiful, incredible old. It was an office that was in this old uh, fire station. Right. And it was just an amazing office. I remember sitting there at my desk and putting in Identity Crisis and listening to that first song and just getting chills, um, almost like I did for Nevermind. Yeah. Where I was like, I love this. What are these? Used this, to totally. Right? And. I've always been I've always been driven by belief. Mm-hmm. I've always been like I believe in this and let's make it happen and I just remember like in that moment listening to Identity Crisis going like uh I believe in this and right. I love this and I'll do whatever I can to help this happen. Right, right. And so I um I'd, I'd known uh, Dustin a bit from Green because he took my place when I left. Right. And they used to bring in uh, First Impressions. They're, they're, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. UP. Awful EP. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I reached back out to him um, and uh, we connected. And uh, I basically just, I said, I'll work for free, man. Yeah. Like, here's what I would love to do. What do you think? Sure. And so we just started like that, man. Your story from that sort of management perspective is so unique just because it's like, you know, of course, a lot of managers, like, whatever, it's like, you know, they either, like, whatever, especially this day and age, it's like they join a collective where it's like they're part of, like, you know, six other managers or yeah. whatever. And then there's still people that do identify, like, one young band and they kind of, you know, rise with them. Mm-hmm. But that story is much less common, like, than the just joining an agency or yeah. whatever. Um, and so it was, like, watching you guys, like, you know, the... I always try to put things in context for people because it's like, you know, that's what the internet is devoid of is context. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, in the early two thousands when, you know, when, when you, you know, thrice was at the absolute epicenter of 
the all the major label weirdness of just like oh mm -hmm. the, like we can take a gamble on these bands mm -hmm. and like we're you know when i say gamble it's like you know island being like okay yeah we're gonna sign thrice and thursday and like this is gonna be you know the next nirvana's and mm -hmm. like you know i'm sure you've heard ridiculous hyperbole placed on the bands mm -hmm. in, in in boardrooms yeah. we, you know as as the sort of you know management career was still like you know in its infancy i mean you had been doing this for a few years now but mm -hmm. you were you know you hadn't swam at that level so to speak no i mean <laughs> was it i mean i presume at you had there, there's certain mile markers in your head where you were just like oh my like this is terrifying. Like, what are we doing here? But you had to be confident because the step even getting to that though yeah. is um, before they ever generated all the interest that they did. Right. You have to remember people didn't like them. No, like uh, it was they so hard for them to, to get a show. They didn't have a home anywhere. No, right? they had no home. Like all the like straight edge hardcore uh, Huntington Beach. What was that whole crew like? The yeah, monster. Crew, the monster. Right, like, right. That whole thing. Like they were like, what are these dudes doing singing <laughs> right. and not beating people up? Right. And then all the like punk rockers were like, why are they screaming at us? And so there was, they were in this really weird uh, void where they weren't really welcome anywhere, but it also kind of enabled them to play on, with everybody. With, with everybody. Yeah. And so um, those early days were, were hard. I mean, they, they were, they were definitely hard. Um, you know, lots of shows at, at, at coups, totally. lots of shows at uh, Shea Cafe, yeah. um, Showcase, yep. uh, a bunch of stuff like that. So, um, I, that's why I had gone back to school because it was, it was hard. It was working. Like they were, um, I believe at the time they, they were assigned to hopeless. Sure. Um, like you felt the upward or subsidy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was momentum, but I was like, this isn't gonna like, yeah. like I believe in this and I love this, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna support us right. anytime soon. And so I was like, well, I'll go back to school and I can do both at the same time. And that's when it blew up because right when I went back to school is when, um, illusion of safety came out. Right. It was almost like a month difference. And so I, I'm, in my dorm room at Concordia University here in Irvine yeah. and getting calls from Lior Cohen, like the head of Island Def Jam and Jason Flom, the head of Atlantic and the heads right. of Capital and Sony and Columbia, like everyone's calling my dorm room. <laughs> like in between classes, I'm taking these calls and I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. But uh, I did two things. Okay. One, um, I already, I had a really good team. Right. Um, in, an informal team, um, people that I'd worked with that, sure. I, that I could bounce ideas off of and like get guidance on. And so I just availed myself of, of smart people and mm. just said, Hey, help me with this. Help me do my job well for this band that I love and believe in. Right. I want to do really well. And so they, they did, they did. And they, I mean, we had a great lawyer, Scott Bradford, Scott Bradford was amazing. Sure. I mean, so we just had this really good team, um, that was able to weather it. And that was, that was awesome. Not just weather it, but I mean, man, it, it went awesome. Yeah. And the second thing is I grew a beard. <laughs> I grew a beard to look older. Like I, I, I remember. Wow. Um, that was a totally, that was, that was why I ever grew a beard was because I was in over my head negotiating with these people that were yeah. more than twice my age. And I was like, right. well, I don't want them to think I'm a like yeah. complete kid. So I guess I'll grow some facial hair. And like, right. <laughs> that this, yeah, this yeah. will, this will create the illusion. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I have, yeah. I've experienced some stuff. Like I've seen some things. Yes. Not as much as you, but I'm still, yeah, we can be in the same room. Yeah. And it was, it was a really unique, um, awesome experience. Yeah. As far as your relationship to the band, because it was like, you know, you were for all intent and purposes, like the fifth member and not in the creation aspect of it, but mm -hmm. it was like, 
you know, there's, there's always this weird notion of managers being like this, you know, evil puppet master pulling the strings. And yeah. it was like, Oh, well, management told me to do this. So I guess we'll do this, you yeah. know, but like that, you know, you never, you never had that vibe. You, <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to, um, kind of where, where you started. Like I've always seen myself more as, um, a facilitator sure. and a, a helper. And so I viewed my role as what does the band want to do? Like what's their vision? Mm-hmm. Where do they want to go? What do they want to create? And how can I help that happen in the best way possible? Right. And so I, I would give pushback. I would um, help correct where it was needed. But um, by and large, I viewed my job as how do I put together the best team sure. and the best circumstances so that these people are, um, that I love and believe in are, are successful. Right, so. right, right. Um, and so it was like, you know, after, after everything had, had not subsided, but after, you know, you, you guys signed to Island and, you know, mm-hmm. the records that you put out with them, not commercial successes like the label had wanted, but mm-hmm. you guys were continuing to grow. Yeah. Um, was it one of those things where it was, you know, in the kind of, you know, major label story, story tradition of was it difficult to like work within that system just because it was so massive or was it like, no, we felt like we had already walked into a good situation because we, you know, ultimately they paid a lot of money for us to be here in the Mm -hmm. first place. Mm -hmm. So was that, uh, was it difficult for you to kind of navigate that being the, you know, the, 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 the mouthpiece of the band. The one who had to break all the bad news about everything we won't do. (laughs) Totally. Totally. Hey guys, Uh, we can't do this. We can't um, do that. It, it, it wasn't. And and honestly, like looking back, that was, Mm. that was some of the stuff that I'm most proud of, uh, of the thrice guys, um, that I really always respected them for and Mm -hmm. was proud of was that they didn't make decisions based on money. Um, they, they made decisions. Yeah. You didn't feel like they did dumb stuff. No, they didn't. They, they based everything on, on the art, the craft, the Mm -hmm. music and, uh, their fans. And so, I mean, I, I distinctly remember, um, Visu. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had done artists in the ambulance and that did, that did well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, opened a lot of really good doors, um, for them. Uh, and then Visu came around and it was like, all right, well, how are we going to follow this up? Right. And I distinctly remember there was a moment where they had to choose, they were meeting with a bunch of producers Sure. and their choice was between Howard Benson yep. who had produced Hoopastank. Of course. And that, uh, and that was pre my chemical romance. Like totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, 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 actually it wasn't. He had oh, done, he had done uh, yeah, it was after their first, okay. yeah. Right. And so, I mean, he had done these massive totally. radio single, uh, records and, um, Steve Osborne, mm-hmm. who nobody had heard of, no. but who had done U2 and Peter Gabriel, right. um, and a bunch of other stuff that's a little more eclectic. Sure. And I, I remember the label obviously pushing for the, hey, let's the, get Howard in here. Yes. Let's get Howard in here and make sure that, you know, there's a massive radio song and we had to, um, put our foot down and be like, we're going to go with Steve. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I still, that was one of the, the harder decisions. Cause you're like, um, in my, in my mind, that was one of the harder decisions because right. it, it was like, we are choosing not commercial success. We are choosing, um, to do what we believe in though. It might come at a cost. Sure. And, um, and I still, I, th- I think it was the right decision. I still, I love uh, Visu and I love it. Dude, I love the direction they went after that. Oh, totally. I mean, it's incredible. Well, it's like the, the, the legacy that the band leaves. Like you guys chose to focus on that rather than, you know, yes. whatever. If you went Rather that, than immediate success. Totally. Because yep, totally. who, who knows, whatever, in three years, people would look at that that particular potential Howard Benson record and be like, oh, yeah, that was kind of a misstep. Or or, I mean, or it could have 
propel them into something even larger yeah. and then they would you know they could have lost their sort of artistic vision and just be like oh i guess we're just another band you know totally um obviously prior to you know thrice being on island and stuff like that the i mean subsidy and hopeless existed very i mean it, that that charity structure existed and it was well respected mm-hmm. yeah um and so when the opportunity came, you know, early on, again, this was probably two, 2000 uh-huh. when they signed to a hopeless subsidy. Um, they had, uh, we had met with uh, Revelation. Oh, yeah. And uh, I can't remember. We're just getting stuck in the Nitro at one point, too. Might have been. Maybe. I, yeah. I don't remember. Again, my memory is pretty spotty. Yeah. Um, but I do remember um, the guys specifically, that the Harris guys specifically chose subsidy because, um, Again, like they were making decisions not based on money, but on what they believed in. And there was an opportunity to say, well, we can create, we can use the gifts that we have mm-hmm. to create great music um, for the sake of music and for the sake of um, our fans. And while we do that, we can benefit other people who are in uh, really difficult circumstances. Like, sure. Let's do it. Right. And, um, and so, I mean, that was, again, one of the decisions they made that was uh, based on uh, their convictions, their belief um, that was really hard mm-hmm. at first. I mean, there were at the very beginning, I, I remember there were times when, um, the checks that were being cut for the charities were bigger than the checks that were getting cut for the royalties. Really? Interesting. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, just because the way that the, the, yeah, the deal was, was structured, right. Um, the charities always got paid Sure. and the band didn't always get paid. Right. And so that was, that was honestly very early on really hard. Right. Obviously, as time, right, totally. as time I mean, goes I th- along, sure. I think they ended up raising over a million dollars, which is an incredible. Totally. Because you start thinking, like, at, at some point, um, the, the business w- was doing well enough that um, it just started happening on its own on the side. Right. And it ended up benefiting, um, you know, single moms and abused kids in Fullerton and right. uh, cancer research and, um, oh, man, uh was it like a writing a literacy program? Oh, for, sure, sure. Uh, kids that eight two six, eight two six, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> again, one of the things they did based on conviction that was that was very difficult at first, but um, was the right decision down the road. And right. you know, you mentioned that having to go in and as the manager and have the, hey, here's the thing we're not going to do, right. or, or here's the thing we really want. It's something I, I I do remember having multiple conversations about album packaging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, um, sure. You remember. Um, I don't know if you remember the, the first uh, artist in the ambulance packaging. Yeah, that totally. Matt you had, Mo- car, you had yes. cards, right. <clears throat> Matt Most, um, who was the, is the bassist in Cold War Kids. Cold War Kids was originally a, a design I don't know, group that he had. Right. And they designed it. Uh, it was basically like 12 or 13 right. individual cards that right. slid into a die cut <laughs> cardboard bag. I mean, it would, I don't know how much it cost, but I can't believe they let us do it. Right. But we did, you know, the first hundred thousand, uh, units were that packaging but though, i mean those were those were fights that we were constantly having I mean, right. like we want to create something that is uh that is substantial sure. and um beneficial and beautiful and um it is and, it's so cool because you guys you guys had the you had the clout and the cachet in order to to push back on that stuff and ultimately get it to be approved because they were just like but like these guys are the thing now. Like I mean, I could just see like, especially with my record label mind working of just like, well, but we got to keep these guys happy. Like we got it. Like we could concede on this. Whatever. It's another like eight cents a unit or whatever. Like yeah. But you know, ultimately yeah. it was like you guys. 
could push back on that stuff. And that was, that's it. It's an important lesson to learn of like the battles that you can probably fight and the ones you're just like, we shouldn't push back. Like this is, is this that important to them? We had a lot of those. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As your management company started to grow, it's like mm-hmm. I, uh, so many people when they start something on their own, don't ever consider the idea of like, Hey, like I can't wait to be a boss. This is going to be rad to have like employees and like mm-hmm. it's going to be really fun to manage people. And mm-hmm. it's like, no, like most people like don't have that consideration mm-hmm. or aren't really uh, aren't really skilled in that specific trait, you know, mm-hmm. of. And so like as the management company started to grow and, and things were really, you know, not only hitting with Thrice, but every single one of your bands um, had success on, on whatever level that they were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, was it difficult to kind of expand and still be, uh, I guess, satisfied yourself? I think it, it was incredibly satisfying mm-hmm. um, and also very unsatisfying. Um, yeah. So on the satisfying side, um, again, going back to the idea of team, um, in addition to kind of like that, that like, helper, facilitator, defender, advocate kind of role I play. Uh, I I think I'm, I can also see, I can all, I can also usually pretty clearly see the big picture and where Mm. pieces fit. How how can we get to where we need to get? And I can usually um, see it clearly and um, strategize effectively to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of other things that I'm really weak in. And so I've always loved a team uh, and bringing in people around me that um, Mm compliment. And so like, we did. I mean, like Kenny O'Leary, um, a super good friend, so talented, um, still still manages thrice now. Yep. Um, and then Brent and Brett and uh, Chris Venn. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just a it was just a great team of really smart, um, passionate guys who were all like minded in their approach to management. That it wasn't a uh, you know, dictatorship, uh, right. uh, you know, who, who's uh, some kind of like Lou Pearlman oh, <laughs> right, management right. style. It was, it was much more of a, Hey, we're in this together right, and right. we're going to, we're going to, we're just going to fight through it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so it was really satisfying in what we built, um, in the way that we did business, uh, in that, I mean, all of our bands basically went from the, every single band that we had from, you know, thrice to Rufio to, to Matt Costa to Cold yeah. War kids, uh, to Vedera, um, right. All went from the garage, mm-hmm. like really like practice space totally. garage to, uh, major labels, international touring, um, right. And, and doing and creating what they wanted to create. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal. Unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Uh, and so that to me was very satisfying, mm-hmm. but the, the unsatisfying part would be, uh, more of at the time putting my entire like worth and value and, um, I mean, all of that into right. how we were doing. And, um, I mean, that's crushing, you know? I right. Mean, well, cause well, I mean, that swings on a daily basis. It totally does. I mean, you're, you're putting your uh your entire identity yeah. into something that is based ultimately on the uh whims and tastes and fashion of others like yeah uh, yeah it's a really pre- precarious situation <laughs> right and at the time i didn't i didn't see that clearly at the time yeah. it, it took um a few uh, uh we'll, we'll get there but it, right. it took some circumstances for me to to see um just really how unfulfilling and um right how you couldn't anchor yourself to that i couldn't right right. um and it's you know it's funny i I remember um speaking of team uh uh, andrew ellis um who i man i just love that dude right he was uh your booking agent a booking agent yes Mm -hmm. who is uh who i we used to go i would go into when i was you know again when i had grown a beard to look older um and i would have to like when i would tour with with rice in the van Mm -hmm. because it was just the five of us I would go to settle a show at the end of a show. Right. And if the booker, if the, uh, the promoter was being really shady about mm-hmm. something on the contract and I didn't know exactly how to approach it or like how to resolve it, mm-hmm. I would just look at them and I would say, hold on a minute. And I would call Andrew and get him on the phone and I would just say, Andrew wants to talk to you. And to watch them quiver, like just <laughs> quiver of what was going to happen. Right. Um, he he was always this kind of like big brother figure um, right. for, for all of us. And um, and so I loved to do it. I learned uh, so much from him. And But what was interesting about the team part of it and, and what we're talking about with the, the fulfillment is yeah, yeah. for a dude like Andrew who was, uh, who was known as kind of like a gruff, um, no-nonsense no right. dude, um, th- there was a period in, in the music industry part where I was, I, I don't know, I think I was probably depressed. I was, mm-hmm. I was really, really just down. Sure. And the only person who asked, like, how are you doing was Andrew Ellis. Really? And I, I just remember that. We're, we're, <laughs> we went on a walk yeah. uh, near my house in Orange, and he was just like, dude, 
what's going on and right. how are you doing? And uh, it was just, awe. again, just going back to that, that team and that friendship and that, that camaraderie and like, yeah, well, just, it came, it came from an unexpected person to totally. like, right. Who, who wasn't, wouldn't be totally. typically quote unquote sensitive to other people's issues and be like, Hey dude. Yeah. And you're like, Whoa, this is coming from you. Totally. And it was, it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, a lot of the time in, in new noise was, was filled with stuff like that. Like that was just kind of our, our community of people. It was really, right. Really good group. And so then as you, uh, you know, as you started to, like you were alluding to earlier, that, that, you know, that sort of inner calling that you had mm-hmm. been, you know, you put one aside, mm-hmm. you, you put your, you know, your ministry work to the side while mm-hmm. you obviously explored the music stuff. Mm-hmm. And then once that call started to become more strong and you started mm-hmm. to have to make the decision to step away when you did from the, the management stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, I mean, you were stepping away at a time where it was like, you, you could have continued to do that for 10 plus years, if not longer, like that, that could have parlayed into a, you know, a, a, a life spanning career, but you obviously chose not to do that. Yeah. Uh, so why? A, f- a few things. Uh, I think uh, a few things. Uh, one, I always, I always knew it wasn't an old person's business. Um, right. I remember when I was nineteen and working at, at Time Honorable Waltz. My boss, Jack Isquith, um, he had, from what I remember, he had uh, two kids that were the oldest of anyone in the office. And from what I remember, my, most everybody wasn't married or they were just getting married very late in life. They didn't have kids or they were divorced or, or something. It, it just wasn't like a kind of like a, I didn't see a really good home work right, balance right, at all, you know? Right. And I remember like saying to Jack, I was like, Hey Jack, like how come you have a normal family, but no one else does. And, and he's, he was like, Nick, what job, what other job requires you to be at a bar at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night? Right. And I remember then at 19 being like, uh, okay, oh, yeah. I probably won't be doing this past 30. Sure. It was, was just my thought. Right. Um, so that was just, that was always kind of in my mind. Like right. I, I, the exceptions to the exceptions to that rule are people like Rick Rubin. Right. Or Cohen, like people who are, are millionaires who like, uh, were vanguards of a whole <laughs> musical genre. That, <laughs> right. Right. Um, that wasn't, that wasn't us. And right. so I just had a reality check there. I knew mm-hmm. that wasn't going to be there. Um, and then, uh, the other part of it is, um, I kind of already mentioned, like just coming to um, coming to realize just how much of myself in that time. Um, well, I well, I am so proud of, of so much that we did. Um, of course, um, there was there was a lot of it personally that um, I could be really um, I could be really self important. You know, like sure. Uh, don't you know who I am? You know, of course, you know, Nick Bogardus, New Noise Manager, whatever. Like, right. And I could be really manipulative because the the manipulation is that is the dark side of that mm-hmm. gift of being able to gather people. Right. Totally. Like, people can feel used or taken advantage of, and um, right. And so there was just so much. I mean, I I, I distinctly remember, and I've actually um, used this illustration in, in sermons on Sundays. Like, I, I distinctly remember walking into industry parties, yeah, in L.A. and like thinking as I walked through the door, who do I need to meet? to get done what we want to get done. Right. I mean, which is another way of saying like, who can I use tonight? Of course. Right. Totally. <clears throat> and that's just like, a lot of that just goes assumed. All of it's encouraged. And all of it was, was just really corrosive to me. Cause it, it, it feeds into my own, like my own sinful nature of like sure. wanting to uh, be awesome at the expense of everybody else. Totally. Um, and so um, that period basically, um, 
again, putting all of your identity on something that is uh, on how you're performing, uh, especially in an industry that is based completely on perception. All right. Um, built in me a duplicity, um, a, a complete duplicity between who I said I was and what the reality of who I was. Right. And so I'm, I'm, you know, saying, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm going to church, but uh, the reality um, for for a lot of people who knew me during that time was um, I, I didn't. Yeah, just, they wouldn't know. Like, right. but I mean, the the drinking, um, the girls, the the partying, all that stuff. Like, the, the um, even like I mentioned, like just some of the like the ways of the business. Like, wasn't um, it wasn't anchored on it. Anything. Was no man. It was, right. and it was, and it was. I mean, it was corrosive to me. It was uh, harmful and abusive and and consumptive of other people. And it was just. I came to be. I basically came to a point where I had to face that. Sure. I had to face who I was, um, and um, and that's where for me that calling became more clear because it wasn't a what was like a calling to like well I should go into uh, I should become a pastor because I want to help people mm-hmm. became a calling to I want to become a pastor because I love Jesus. And I know what he's done for me. Right. And it was, it was two very different uh, motivators. Right? Sure. And so for, for me having to like basically come to the end of myself, like I'm not as awesome as I say that I am. So totally. the fact that there's a lot of parts of me that are really bad and, right. and I need, I need God, I need a savior um, really kind of brought me uh, out of uh, the, right. the music industry. Sure. But then also the third factor, so the, the the first was just the kind of like in the back of my mind, this isn't an old person business. The second is um, actually coming to a, a real and deep and personal understanding of um, uh, the gospel and, mm-hmm. and God's saving of me. Right. And then the third is just my wife. Um, I had met my wife. She was interning at um, at uh, Drive Through Records. Right. Um, and so you can imagine what that circus was like. Right, right? yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, we had met through um, the, the music business, and uh, we had known each other for a little while, but we started dating. Um, we basically started dating a, a month before she was leaving for Mongolia because she was going to be in the Peace Corps. Okay. And basically I was faced with a choice of like, I, I want to marry this girl. Like, I know I'm going to marry this girl. Like, sure. I can't not spend the rest of my life with her. And I'm going to have to go across an ocean to get her. These three things lined up where I was like, I just, know it's, sync, I just yeah. know it's time. And so I remember having conversations with um, all the bands. Um, I remember distinctly um, talking to Dustin in his truck. We were driving somewhere. And um, I just remember being like kind of shaky because like I was telling my best friend, like, uh, you'd, exi- oh, we were, right. you'd existed for-, for eight years at that point. Right. Like, doing this together. Um and I remember like him just being awesome and like, do it. Right. Do it. You know? And I remember talking to to Tepe and him doing the same thing and Ed and, and Riley doing the same thing. And it was it was really hard. Um, but it was uh, it was absolutely the right choice. So right. we basically I mean, I gave the business over to Kenny, um, who um again is still just awesome and killing it. Right. Um, and uh gave the business over to Kenny, sold our house in orange, basically just yeah, pick- turned my life upside down to right. move to Mongolia, Mongolia, which is just south of Siberia. Right. Um, after I married my wife, um, we started dating in April. 
Um, I planned the wedding while she was overseas. We'd, mm-hmm. I would send her pictures of like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Dustin's wife actually tried on her wedding dress like to make sure it would fit because they were about the same size. And right. so I'd send her pictures like, do you like this one? All that. Right. So planned everything. She flew back, used her vacation time. Uh, we got married in January, the beginning of January. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, having given over everything else in my life, like we landed in Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia. It was negative 30 or 40. All of the moisture in my face froze. Right. Like my, my eyes, my eyelashes, my eyelashes literally froze shut. My nose turned into like an icicle. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this, like, is, this, is, this is real. This is where we're at. Uh, yeah, totally. And so we spent the first year and a half of our marriage over there. Um, and that for me was the time when I actually started to really see, look um, at yourself, look sure. at myself, in reality of who I was even more deeply in that time in, in music. Um, and cause I remember telling people, you know, we're in Mongolia, like, right. you know, uh, in between Russia and China, people don't go there. And no. it's like, a, it's a largely uh, historically a nomadic culture. And, um, I remember people, you know, asking me missionaries who were there, they were the only foreigners and, and Mongolians who could speak English. They'd be like, Hey, what'd you do in America? And I, you know, have this like little, this little upswelling of pride of like, well, I own my own, um, business and my own management company in the music industry. And I worked with these bands and I name them. Right. And you know, in America people would be like, Oh, that's awesome. Oh, right. Yeah, right. In Mongolia, they were like, cool. Yeah, what Can is, you milk a cow? Yeah. Like, like they would have been way more impressed if I could have milked a cow and totally. slaughtered a goat. And right. Like, Something practical. Totally. Could, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And so it, when I didn't get that reaction that I was so used to getting, I was like, but, 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 but hey, you don't get how important this right. is. Right? Let me play you this. Totally. It happened. It totally happened. <laughs> and so it, it was like, it was the first time like those kind of strands of my identity started to get really unraveled. Right. Um, and it was really, uh, it was really helpful. It, I mean, it, it unraveled that part of my identity. It made our marriage uh, a team. Sure. Uh, and it was, it was like us. And like, if you've seen the Born Identity, like you, like the, the first Born Identity, when they're like running through uh, like Soviet block apartments. Yep. Um, that was our apartment. Right, right. It was like you know, like five hundred square feet of concrete. Right. With like a single light bulb hanging down from a wire. Sure. And so we, we'd tell the story of like, you know, your first year of marriage. You know, for some people, that can be pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. And when it's negative forty outside and you're and you're in a fight you're not going anywhere right you're gonna work that out and so that's kind of like that first year and a half was that and so we were away from our family and friends we were away from everything that we knew in a completely foreign environment i mean absolutely upside down from anything we totally i mean in a you know in democratic society uh like america going to one that had only recently become democratic but was communist you know in in a largely you know Christian culture going to one that was atheist and Buddhist and then a largely Western one going to a largely Eastern Asian culture. Like it was, everything was upside down. And yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a real eye opener. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 You, you, you stripped away everything and you just focused Completely. on obviously what was, was mattering to you. Yeah. Last point I want to hit on that was yeah. your, you know, what you're doing currently, yeah. you know, like we've, we've spoken about obviously with you planning a church here in, mm-hmm. in, in Orange County and, what you've been doing and how we've equated it to, you know, DIY music where mm-hmm. it's like, cause so many people, and honestly, I never considered this until I was watching well, I'm watching you go doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know, people, people have the idea of church and they have, you know, either obviously positive or negative connotations with it, yeah. but they don't actually like look up at the, the, the structure, like how, what, it, what does it take to like make this like yeah. into a place of worship or, 
and like the the parallels that I see of what it's like being you know a band in the garage totally. and what you're doing totally is exactly the same thing. And I think I, I wanted to talk about it because I don't I, like I said no one considers that. People just think of church and it's just like oh it's this building I show up to a bunch of old people in it like you know this sort of stereotypical view yeah. of what a church means. And so the you know like applying the sort of DIY principles that you've been able to learn within everything you did with your bands and kind of applying that to what you're doing now. Yeah. I think, um, there are, I mean, there's, there's a lot of the, um, uh, logistical and superficial similarities of just like what it takes to create a community. And, and and there's, there's that, a lot of the similarities there. There's also some, uh, deeper similarities. Sure. Um, that you and I, you know, you and I have talked about before. Um, and that is, uh, you know, in in everything. Kind of, I've, I've already mentioned that identity piece yep. a, a few times. Uh, but my friend Bill Clem um, was a pastor up in Portland. He had basically laid out a really helpful um, picture of what it means to be made in the image of God. Like mm-hmm. that, as, as as Christians, we believe that every human being is made in the image of the God who who made everything. And Part of whether or not you you uh, believe that, hear me out on these different parts because I think they're um, it's insightful. Okay, um, uh, is that part of what that that image of God means? Is that everybody has uh, an identity in something? Everyone is worshiping something, and everyone is in community with a group of people, and everyone is on mission to do something. Like every human being yeah. has those far, four parts of them, which we would say comes as a result of being made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes, so for example, when it comes to music, right? Like working in a, an independent record store, right. you got to see, like I got to see people come in and they would buy their first offspring record. Right. And then they would buy a refused record. Sure. And then maybe they would buy a crass record. Right. And then they, you know, they would just kind of like go down this, like this slope, this entry point into like this deeper uh, exploration sure. of what was behind all this music. But right. as they did it, you saw like even their appearance change. Oh yeah. Right. Like you'd, you'd see some kid come in in like a polo shirt yeah. and six months later, the dude has Liberty spikes <laughs> and like and right. tattoos everywhere. And, um, and so what taking that kind of like paradigm, you, like they were putting their identity in like, uh, I, I am a, I am into punk rock or mm-hmm. I am into independent music. And right. because my identity in that is in that I worship, um, these other people in the scene who are like, the really truly DIY punk rock people or right. these bands who have been doing this for so long or whatever, like you're worshiping something else out of it. Um, and you're in community with other people who are like-minded and you are on a mission to, uh, you know, whatever, you know, say what you were in monster crew, right? Yeah, yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. that. Like you're on a mission to enforce your, your straight edge, your police, straight edge right. Sharia law right. in Orange County. Um, right. Uh, so everyone has these these four aspects that that they are looking for, and um, so as a as a Christian, I, I believe those things can only truly be found in in God and and Jesus. And so, doing church is is similar, but I think it's ultimately like leading people to what they're really looking for. Okay. And so, for example, um, have you watched comedians in cars having coffee? Yes. With Seinfeld, right? Spectacular. Right. First of all, how brilliant. Is the Patton Oswalt one when oh, he goes yeah. to Handsome Coffee? Totally. I thought that was. So I good. love when New Yorkers rag on LA. It's because totally. it's so condescending. It is it's so like, funny. What are you doing out here? Totally, yeah. it's so funny. But did you have you seen the one with Michael Richards? Oh yeah. Oh, incredible! It was, it was, it it, it made my heart just sad. Man. Totally. I mean, because you see these old friends, 
Uh, Michael Richards, who played uh, Kramer, right, mm-hmm. who had this uh, very public uh, self-destruction where he went on this racist rant, totally. right, and during the, in the middle of a, of a, a routine he was doing. Mm-hmm. And so you see these old friends who are sitting across the table from each other having coffee, and they get to this this real vulnerable point, right? Which I had never seen reached in any of the other episodes. No, not I at watched all. That show it was it was the only real point where someone's heart was exposed. I agree. Where Michael Richards was like. This was the most. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, basically, yeah, like, this yeah, was yeah. the most painful thing I've ever been through. Totally. And and thank you for sticking by me. Yeah. Right? Like what he was saying to us, and it was like this incredible, heartfelt moment. And he was describing how everyone basically abandoned him, mm-hmm. except for Jerry. And I don't know if you remember this, but like Jerry's, I was like, oh my gosh, this could be amazing. Like, what's he gonna say? Like, yeah, yeah. help your friend out, right? Right. And I remember Jerry's response was something like, um, "Hey man, it's your choice to put that down." Was basically what he said. Right. Basically, it was like, get over it. Mm-hmm. Try harder to get over it. Right. And I just went, oh man, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the worst advice you could give to somebody right. dealing with what he's dealing with. Uh, he's dealing with shame, yeah. right? Like, Michael, he's Michael Richards is dealing with the fact that he had done something really wrong and horrific, mm-hmm. but that as a result of that, he was labeled as unacceptable, contaminated, right. an outsider, and um. The only thing that dislodges that kind of shame is to be loved and accepted by someone greater than those who've abandoned you. Sure. And so in that moment, uh, Michael Richards didn't need, uh, he didn't need good advice because that was just bad advice. Right. Uh, He didn't even need a comic to make him laugh. Like what he needed was the gospel to be told that. Uh, greater than the shame he's experiencing is the love of a God who has rescued him from that. Like, uh, to me, that is what going from the entertainment business and, and the sure. music industry into the church looks like and why I'm passionate about it. Right. Um, so that's the deeper stuff for me. Right. Um, and the, the, the logistical part. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned like, it's like when we first started with, with Thrice, like you're doing all the flyering, you're yeah. doing all of the, the show booking, you're doing the website, you're doing right. uh, the design. I mean, everything. I, I'm doing everything that I'm not skilled to be doing. <laughs> like, um, right, right, right. right. I, I literally am using Keynote yep. to do design for online stuff. Like right. any, any designer with any kind of aptitude is probably throwing up on their desk right now. Right. Right. That I'm using keynote to do design, right. but that's where we're, that's where we are, man. Like, and so, um, for me, it's, it is, um, using the skills that you mentioned of like being an advocate and a defender and a, a gatherer and a helper, um, to help people, um, worship and, uh, grow as, uh, disciples of Jesus. And, uh, man, build a team to use their skills that, so that we can build a healthy, a healthy church together. Yeah. You know, I think you mentioned the thing about mo- most people's uh, preconceptions about, about church. Right. Um, and I think what's helpful to think about that is just like in music, maybe even going back to the, like, the example just used, like just like in music, like if someone like came to you and they're like, man, I love punk rock. Sure. Green day is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Like you'd be like, man, that's cool that you like that. Like, right. And I, I think they're great. Like, let's let's check this thing out, right? Totally. Like, let me let me introduce you to, to a few other things, right? right. Or even uh, scandals in punk rock or something like that. Like, oh sure, or, or, you know, people signing like people who are in the independent music scene who signed to major labels for uh, 
Right, when selling out sell was a everything, thing. like just completely yeah, yeah. sell out their soul, like for <laughs> right. everything, right? Or even thing like you know, like a Rage Against the Machine, where like they have this whole ideology that is in complete conflict uh, with the reality of their their business decisions, right? right? Of course. Like, anyway, looking at the abuses or distortions of something mm-hmm. shouldn't tell you that what it is is broken. It should tell you that there is a better design behind it. That is being abused or distorted. Right. And so a lot of people's preconceptions about, about church or faith um, come from distortions or abuses that they have experienced. And that's, that's sad and it's mm-hmm. regrettable. Right. But I would hope that they would see um, that the abuses and distortions aren't the, the real thing. They, they should be indicators that there is something good behind it that has been uh, warped. Sure. And so um, for us as a church, as a young church, I mean, we, we just started in January, like, our hope is um, not to react negatively uh, against abuses or distortions that we've experienced or seen around us, but but much more to say like, okay, well, what is God's design for his people? Mm-hmm. And it's good design for his people. And how do we do that well for uh, one another and for Orange County? And so for me, that's, that's exciting. Right. right. Uh, that's the that's the motion for that's obviously like the the you know mission that you are are on totally you feel called to do as opposed to just existing because that's what a lot of people obviously do from the context of like you're saying like leaving you know burning like literally burning down one side of your life from and then refocusing on something else it's like that it it takes a lot of you know uh, courage and trust to not in yourself but in something that is greater than you (laughs) to be able to move forward to that totally that's why that's why i wanted you on here because i I think it's such an important lesson of regardless of where a person's at in their own walk of whatever faith or spirituality means to them Mm -hmm. it's it's an important point to know that it's like you you can come from these these similar backgrounds of you know being attracted to a subculture and like this can exist like you can do similar things that are directly applicable to like your faith mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, totally. and knowing why these things don't have to be, you know, uh, uh, corrupted by larger, uh, you know, influences where it's like, you know, whatever people say, you know, whatever Christian hardcore Christian punk like that shouldn't exist. You uh-huh. know? And it's like, well, that's not for you to say. <laughs> I think that I mean, that you mentioned like the the uh, integration of, of faith and basically like creation. Like yeah. I, I think I think Christianity has like an incredible um, uh, foundation and support and uh, encouragement for cultivating like right. the the taking of raw resources and creating something new for the flourishing of others is like at the heart of of the faith and so I mean when you look at art right. and music and education uh, and um, politics sure. and, and all that stuff like Christians did that because they felt a a compulsion out of a God who has created himself, like to create good for other people around him. So, I mean, like you had like, I mean, for centuries, right. <laughs> Christian, Christian art was like the greatest stuff in the world. They were totally. creating beautiful things for, uh, the glory of God and the, and the good of other people. They, they created music that was, I mean, incredible and mm-hmm. lasting until this day And education. Like, I mean, Harvard, Yale, I mean, Princeton, like schools started by believers for the sake of right. creating something good. Like, so it, at the heart of of the faith has always been like uh, create something for the the good of others, and I right. think that's it's simple yeah. and, it's, and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's an incredible point that sometimes gets like you said distorted and lost from that perspective. Totally. 
Well, I could not be more thankful for you hanging out and Thanks, diving into this. this. I knew it was going to be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's thank you, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being a good friend through all the years. From I mean, I, I was coming in here and I was thinking like I've known Ray since high school. Yeah. So I've known him since high school. Right. I've known him through a ska band. Yeah, yeah. I've known him through the ups and downs of the music industry. Yeah. What could go wrong? Totally. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, right. We've known each other in all of our, our glory Awkward. and unglory. Totally. 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 And that's the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, bro. So there was the conversation with Nick. I almost wanted to sing right there, but I didn't. So that's Nick in a nutshell. Crossofchristoc.com. That is the church that he currently runs. Yeah, if you're in Southern California and you have any passing interest in uh, religion and discussion around that, you should check it out because it's a uh, pretty cool thing. Like I said, I really compare it to the early life of bands where you're just like you're trying to build something you're trying to get people to you know pay attention and believe what it is that you're you're, you're trying to do so it's pretty awesome and uh yeah i'm just really glad that nick is is taking a risk and doing that on his own so many cool things coming up i'm just not even going to tell you because you know i just get too excited but next week a really really cool conversation Uh, I'm not going to bury the lead. And uh, the producer, as always, is Tom Richfield. And, uh, yeah, donate. Like I said, step it up. (laughs) Until next week, be safe, everybody. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.